You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. This morning, I'm so excited that my guest is my good friend, Andy McCarthy. I am sure you have seen Andy McCarthy all over the Internet. He is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. He's a contributing editor at National Review. He's also a best-selling author, and he's a Fox News contributor. You might not know this about Andy, but he's a former chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, and he led the terrorism prosecution against the blind Sheikh and 11 other jihadists who bombed the World Trade Center in 1993. I first came to know about Andy through his involvement in that prosecution, and he's written about it, and I recommend that book for anyone who's interested in the ongoing issues we have with the threats from radical Islam. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gail. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. I want to start with a little bit of a light topic. You are an extremely excellent writer, and maybe part of my my interest in your writing is also being a lawyer. It's so logical. It's so evidence-based. It's very well laid out. And unlike other column, syndicated columnists, you produce a very high level of consistent work. And I'm interested in finding out about your writing process. How are you able to produce such excellent work so consistently? Uh, I get up early in the morning and I start to read the papers and I bounce off the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) And whatever makes me bounce hardest, I start writing paragraphs. But that's pretty, I, I must say, it's very, very kind of you uh, to put it that way. I've always been um, kind of a self-starter on this stuff. The writing is, was always the part I liked the best when I was a, a prosecutor. It was something I always wanted to do. And I've been very lucky not only uh, to be able to do it, but to be able to do it uh, in conjunction with the things I was most interested in doing the other job I love so much, which was the law. So I've been able to stay in touch with uh, uh, important constitutional issues, national security, Islamic ideology, especially radical Islamic ideology and the like. So it's been uh, kind of a dream existence. And and most of the work is done uh, about 19 paces from my bed. So that's that's also helpful. (laughs) You and I have been doing a lot of interviews about Paul Manafort and Bob Mueller this week. You've written a lot of really excellent pieces on the entire genesis of this special counsel investigation, about the uh, underlying facts related to it, the charging document that established the special counsel. We had two big news items this week. There was an article by The Guardian alleging, essentially we have no evidence Uh, supporting this, but alleging that Paul Manafort had met with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in Britain in 2013, 2015, and later. That was one piece of news that Paul Manafort and his team of lawyers are vehemently denying ever happened, saying that Paul Manafort never met Julian Assange. And then we have this other piece of news in the Mueller investigation that you wrote about, talking about Mueller's team going to the judge in Washington and saying that the plea deal with Paul Manafort is off, but not giving the judge reasons for why they are saying that Paul Manafort has not complied with the information that they want from him. So I'm I'm very curious. She wrote a great piece on this, which we will link. Uh, you really lay out that the prosecutor is in the driving seat in driver's seat in these plea deals. And I, I would just like to understand from your background as a prosecutor to understand what's going on here, because I think most people looking at this situation don't understand. Well, Gail, let's let's take it maybe from um, from the the idea of the plea deal. Um, which I can speak to as a former prosecutor and then maybe build out from there about why this is all so problematic. When a person pleads guilty with the understanding that you'll cooperate with the government, the government is in the driver's seat. The prosecutor is in the dominant position, not just because the prosecutor is the one 
who writes the plea agreement, and these are standard agreements. Uh, they never, the terms in them are always the same. They never change. They don't, uh, my office, the Southern District of New York, never negotiated these terms uh, with defendants who wanted to cooperate, who didn't like this or that aspect of it. It was always take it or leave it. Uh, right. And they always had to take it because, you know, you can't really go find another government. <laughs> when you, you know, this whole, you have to deal with the, you have to deal with the one you have and the prosecutor you have. And what people don't grasp about this, and there's no reason they should, this is kind of inside baseball stuff, but when you plead guilty with the understanding of cooperating, what you are negotiating for and what you obtain from that agreement is the opportunity to convince the prosecutor that you have value. So a lot of people think that, uh, you know, it's a trade. I give you my my information and I plead guilty. And if you don't like my information, I get my plea back. Right. Uh, that's that's not how it works. What what happens is you plead guilty. You give up all of your rights, your right to appeal, your right to challenge everything at trial, all the uh, due process rights that somebody who's accused gets. And what you get in return is an opportunity to convince the prosecutor that you have information that would be valuable to some investigation. If the prosecutor decides that you don't, you know, you give them all the information and the prosecutor either decides you've lied or this has no value, the prosecutor says to you, we're not interested. I'm not under any obligation to file anything with the court that uh, seeks leniency for your sentencing. And you're stuck. You have pled guilty. Your your plea is final. Uh, you don't get it back because the prosecutor decides that you're not a good cooperator. And that's how it works. So, you know, usually it's it works well because the prosecutor only gives these kind of agreement kinds of agreements to people who the prosecutor has reason to believe are going to an advance advance an investigation, either by testimony or other information. So you don't have a lot of situations where, you know, the deal ends up not working out. It happens from time to time, but most of the time, you know, you let the, pro the uh, cooperator come in and give a proffer to the prosecutor before the deal gets signed. So everybody has their eyes open about what is on the table. But, you know, what ha has happened with Manafort is he pled guilty after he was convicted of eight felony counts in a, in a first trial. Right. So he's already under it. He's, he goes to the table already looking at a possibility of 80 years in prison. That's already in the right. bank as far as Mueller's concerned, right? right? So what Mueller offers him is here's a chance to cap your sentence on everything for no more than 10 years. But I have to be satisfied that you're giving me information that's advancing my investigation. And that was what Manafort agreed to. And Mueller has decided that the information isn't advancing his investigation. Now, he claims that Manafort is lying. Manafort claims that Manafort's telling the truth, but he's just, it's a truth that Mueller doesn't want to hear. Uh, and that's the loggerheads that they're at. But it's loggerheads under circumstances where Mueller is holding all the cards. And, you know, look, you can't feel too sorry for Manafort about that because, you know, it's, it's not like... Uh, you know, eight felony counts fell from the sky. He committed right. these crimes and he got convicted by a jury. But let me let me just talk about the larger point. And that's, you know, in connection with this, uh, the, the Guardian story is interesting, but I think the Guardian is already backpedaling from the story. Manafort says it didn't happen. The Trump people, uh, I, my old boss, Rudy Giuliani, I know put out that it was fake news. And they're pretty confident, even WikiLeaks and Assange. And I wouldn't take anything they say at face value, but they were very confident. In yes. And denying that this happened and saying the Guardian was going to end up with egg all over its face. And as soon as they started saying that, the, the Guardian started to kind of backpedal from the story. So the second and third versions of the story that were published were very different. They were less assertive than the first version. You know, it, it went from right. this happened to sources say this might have happened, you know? So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the bank on that. I would wait until we actually have sources who are named and that you can actually uh, hang your hat on. Until then, I'm, I'm not gonna believe that that happened. I think the broader problem here 
is that the Mueller investigation, which I tried to give the benefit of the doubt to, has become a farce. L let me explain why I, I think that's so and why I try to give him the benefit of the doubt. I didn't right. think that there was a basis for a special counsel under the law because the special counsel regulations say that before you appoint one, there has to be two things. There has to be a factual basis for a criminal investigation and there has to be a conflict of interest that is so profound that the Justice Department can't investigate the case in the normal course, right? right. So here, they don't have the factual basis for a criminal investigation as to President Trump. Uh, and they may not have it as to anyone who they're uh, investigating other than the Russians, right? They, so with respect to the president, who is, the, who is the, the supposed cause of the conflict of interest, right? right? They don't have the factual basis for a criminal investigation. And they don't have anything that they can hang their head on to say that there's a conflict of interest. Now, there was a conflict of interest that Sessions decided that he had to get out of the case. Yes. Over. And because I think he that was involved with the campaign, right? That was the that was his and, underlying rationale for why he recused himself. Right. He he was involved in the campaign and he and he had, had these conversations with the Russian ambassador. But I think that what happened with Jeff was uh, he overreacted to being accused of perjury by Al Franken and Democrats during his confirmation hearing. And he just, I think, over broadly said, I'm not going to have anything to do with any of it, not Russia, not the campaign, not anything. And, and that was an overbroad recusal on his part. But the fact right. that and karma, karma came for Al Franken, right? Karma. Karma came for Al Franken. He's no longer in the Senate for his. Oh own. yes, yes, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's like I don't. Is that karma or kismet or I? I, don't, I never know what that that phenomenon is. But but the thing is, the fact that Sessions had this conflict didn't mean the Department of Justice did. So right. And, and I I think if you look at what Mueller has done, like for example, Mueller brought these two Russian cases, right? The two indictments yes. against the two Russian, the ones that'll never be tried. They're like publicity stunt indictments, so right. that he can get a version of events out there that he knows is never going to be challenged in court. What have they done with those cases? They've quietly transferred them to two components of the Justice Department, which you which you can't do if there's a conflict of interest, right? So right. I don't think they ever had a factual basis for an investigation. And I don't think there was ever a conflict of interest that was so profound that the Justice Department couldn't have investigated this without a special counsel. But I think Rosenstein overreacts to being criticized by Democrats for being involved in Comey's firing. And yes. what he ends up doing is saying, you know, I'm appointing a special counsel and he appoints Mueller. So when Mueller gets appointed, I think Mueller's a serious guy. Uh, and even though I don't think that there's a basis for a special counsel, the overarching investigation that he was given was what did Russia do to meddle in the election? You know, we need to get to the bottom of this. I don't think anybody doubts that we need to get to the bottom of bad stuff that Russia does. So I have no problem with that. Absolutely. What I have a problem with is they are not investigating a crime. What they are doing is they are investigating opposition research. They're investigating the seamy underbelly of politics and they are trying to turn it into a crime by basically they bring people in and talk to them about the icky stuff that goes on in politics that nobody wants to talk about. Right. And some people are lying about some of the things they did and they prosecute them for lying to the FBI. But the thing is the underlying thing that they're trying to probe, which is, you know, how did this, how did WikiLeaks, what, what contact, if any, did any Trump people have with WikiLeaks while WikiLeaks was putting this information out? That's all very interesting. It's not a crime. Uh, taking information from this Russian lawyer is not a crime. What is a crime is the thing that we were originally told the investigation was about, which was that Putin hacked the election and that Trump was complicit in that plan. So hacking is a federal crime. It's a very serious federal crime. Right. Right. But it seems that once they once they found out that the Steele dossier, as far as that allegation is yeah. concerned, was nonsense and that there is no evidence that there there was any Trump complicity in Russia's hacking. 
And if you look at Mueller's indictments on the hacking, it seems to preclude the possibility that there was any American involvement, not just Trump, anyone in America complicit in that escapade, then you have lost the federal crime. And well, everything is opposition research, and it's not a crime. And that's the reason they're pleading all these guys to false statements. And you make the point a lot in many pieces you've written about this entire investigation, that there's a difference between national security investigations and criminal investigations. There are different rationales for doing one versus the other. There are different powers that you have. There are different results. And I think that's something that has been completely lost in the mainstream media's discussion of the Mueller investigation. It's been completely lost because I'm so effective at communicating it, right? Yes. <laughs> they don't want to listen to you. <laughs> well, you're, you're too nice. Um, I, you know, look, it has been, it has been lost, and I, and I feel like uh, Cassandra out here from, from yes. the beginning. But, you know, look, the reason that I am so ballistic about this is because in the 1990s, the um, very... Uh, infamously, the Justice Department interposed what, a set of regulations that became, became known as the wall, which prevented the national security side of the FBI's house from communicating with criminal investigators and criminal prosecutors. And, and since you brought it up, I should explain what the, the uh, difference is. The FBI is our, the FBI has a night job, which I didn't realize was true until I was probably a prosecutor for seven or eight years. Wow. Um, the FBI is not only our premier criminal investigative agency on the federal side, it is also our domestic security service. Everybody thinks of the CIA, you know, when they yes. think about spies and all that stuff. But the CIA is a foreign intelligence collection outfit. And we don't want it operating inside the United States. By charter, it's not allowed to spy on Americans. And a lot of the stuff that the CIA has to do overseas is a crime, even in the place where it doesn't. Forget about being, you know, a violation of the Fourth Amendment and all this right. stuff. So, you know, spy business is, is dangerous business. That's the reason, you know, uh, that's the reason people who do it are are very brave they you know yes, they take they are. great risk because a lot of what they do is is not legal and they get killed over it so um we don't want that operating domestically so the fbi which is confined in its operations by the constitution and all the laws of the united states is our domestic security service and they are allowed not only on that in that score they investigate not crime but they investigate the operations of foreign powers in the United States. And foreign powers can either be foreign countries or, or uh, segments of, of you know, cabals in foreign countries, or they can be foreign terrorist organizations. But what the FBI, when the FBI goes to court to get a wiretap in a national security case, they don't bring the court proof, probable cause that somebody has committed a crime they bring the court probable cause that somebody is operating as an agent of a foreign power. And the purpose of a national security investigation, the purpose of a foreign intelligence investigation is not to get evidence to prosecute. It's to divine the intentions, usually hostile, of foreign governments to the extent that they could compromise interests of the United States so that we can thwart them. So it's an information gathering exercise. Right. It's not a, an evidence gathering exercise. And that's to inform the people who are making policy. So that information would get be given to the branches that are making these decisions based on the intentions of the foreign governments, the uh, you know, smaller branches of the of the foreign governments or these terrorist organizations to inform our foreign policy, right? That's that's exactly right, and it's also a very important point because we always talk about how we don't want political interference in law enforcement, right? right? And nobody wants the White House dictating who gets prosecuted. You want the Justice Department to conduct its investigations in accordance with the rule of law, 
We don't want people being investigated on the basis of their political affiliation or any of that stuff. So there's usually, I mean, it's not a hard wall of separation, but there's there's that component of the Justice Department, the day-to-day enforcement of the law, the political operation at the White House will, will ordinarily stay out of, and they're pretty rigorous about respecting that line. Right. National security work is exactly the opposite. National security work is done for the president. It has. It's not the rule of law. It's not um, a, a law enforcement activity. It's an intelligence gathering activity so that the president can carry out his national security duties under the Constitution. So, for example, while you wouldn't expect if the FBI goes out and does a search warrant in a criminal case, the first thing they don't they they don't do is call up the White House and say, guess what we found in this guy's house. But on the other hand, if they do a search warrant in a foreign intelligence case, the first thing they might do is is let the White House know or let, you know, up the chain of command know, here's a threat to the United States that we need to, to do something about. So it's a very different mission. It's done for a very different purpose. And what they gave Mueller, because they didn't have the factual basis for a criminal investigation, was they put him in charge of the counterintelligence investigation against Russia. And one of the big objections to that is that there is no sensible, logical parameters to a national security investigation because since you're just, you're just gathering information, the intelligence guys will tell you you never have enough information. Right. right? And he's not sharing that information with the president, correct? I mean, it's all my understanding is it he that he's using that basis for his investigation, and yet he's not actually delivering the information which that type of in- investigation is premised on. You're exactly right. This is another absurdity of you know when when they say you know will Trump shut down the Mueller investigation there there in that aspect of it i suppose they're talking about the criminal investigation that's the part where we've never gotten an explanation for what the basis of the crime is right but otherwise what Mueller is is carrying on is a national intelligence investigation which is done for the president right. so yeah, <laughs> it's not done for any other reason it's done for the president um, because the point of it is not to find a prosecutable case. It's to let the president know, here's the vulnerability we have with respect to Russia. You know, that's not something that you want to wall the president off from because it's done for. The, I mean, the whole thing is the whole thing is ridiculous. But 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 the other thing is, if you give a prosecutor and an agent a criminal transaction to investigate, that suggests its own parameters, right? If you get to, you're a right. federal prosecutor, right? I say, Gail, I want you to look into this robbery of the first national bank, right? right. I, I don't expect you to come back to me and tell me about like, you know, some crack deal that's going on in Peru, right? I, I, I expect that you're going to tell me that, um, you know, here's what happened with the first national bank investigation. We think we have three people involved. Here are the four elements of a bank robbery case. Here's why we think we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt on each of these elements we should indict. Or we don't have proof of this or that element, which means we can't make the case, so we should decline prosecution and move on to the next case. Right? That's what happens in criminal investigations. That's what happens. That's the reason the, the special prosecutor is such a perverse institution, is in a normal prosecutor's office, every case competes with every other case for resources. And if yeah. you can't make a case, you move on to the next case. You don't have time or resources to, to waste on something that can't be proved. Whereas in these independent counsel investigations, it's like assigning a prosecutor to one target. And here with Mueller, they assign the prosecutor to a target without even outlining what crime he was confined to investigate. So at least with respect to, you know, with Watergate, with Iran-Contra, with, uh, with the Clinton, you know, the, the Lewinsky fiasco and even the Madison Guarantee stuff, every, the president always knew exactly what was under investigation. Everybody right. knew what crime was, was at issue. Here, we have no idea what this guy is investigating. And it turns right. out that, you know, look, in the normal case, if you had a big conspiracy like you know, Mueller's investigating the biggest conspiracy, the most important conspiracy in the history of conspiracies, right? So yeah. 
if you get a cons if you have such a conspiracy, what do you do with the first cooperator if you're a prosecutor? You bring him in, you have him plead guilty to the scheme because that's what you're trying to build your case on, right? So he comes in and he says, yes, there was a Gambino family of La Cosa Nostra. I was a member of it. This guy was the boss. This guy was the, the underboss. Here was my boss. This is my crew. These are the crimes we carried out. We'd get money. We'd pass it up. To you. And you describe the whole enterprise, right? right. So what does Mueller do? Mueller gets his first cooperator and his second cooperator and his third. And what does he plead them guilty to? Lying to, the, lying to the FBI. Well, I'm just I'm not even talking about Manafort and Gates now who were not even investigated for the thing that Mueller is investigating. Right. right? right. Um, the guys who actually are. Look at George Papadopoulos is the textbook case here. If you look at Mueller files, a 14 page statement of the offense with respect to Papadopoulos. Right. Collusion pours off every page of the right. 14. He's meeting with Russians or he's meeting with guys who say they're connected to Russia. One even says that she's, you know, Putin's niece, which turns out not to be true. But they're talking about emails. They're talking about maybe a meeting with Trump and Putin in Russia, maybe a meeting with Putin and Trump here. But everywhere there's there's interplay between Russia and the Trump campaign. And they're talking about emails and all this other stuff. At the end of the rainbow, what does Mueller plead him guilty to? Lying to the FBI about the date of a meeting. Now, this is not what you do in a criminal case. What you do in a, in a normal conspiracy case is you say, you bring this cooperator in and you, said, you say, yes, there was a criminal arrangement, a conspiracy between Trump and the Kremlin to violate a federal law, namely the hacking statute. And here's what our agreement was. Uh, here's the people that we were dealing with on the Kremlin side. Here's the people who were running it on the Trump side. This is how they did the hacking. Then they got the information and we pipelined it through these channels and got it into the public domain, right? You get somebody to come in and say, that, that's our conspiracy, that's what happened. Here's, here's Mueller's problem. He doesn't have a conspiracy to violate a federal law. Right. But he, what he's doing is he is investigating campaign activity, the dirty, un, you know, the seamy stuff. You know, let's get opposition dirt on our opponent and try to get that out into the public domain in the hope that it will influence the electorate. Well, that's icky, but it's not a felony. It's not, not illegal. a misdemeanor. It's not a crime. Right. So that's the reason he's got it. I mean, can you imagine if you were actually building a case, what you would do is plead everybody guilty to lying to the FBI? So all the people you, you put on the stand, the first thing you want the jury to know about them? Is that they lied to the FBI? But what a way to build a case, right? That's because the whole thing is a farce. You would never build a case that way. But because he's investigating something that's not a crime, that's what he's limited to. Well, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And I love the insight that you have that this is not the way to build it. But I think it's interesting, too, that he, Mueller and his team are really putting the thumbscrews to Paul Manafort. And you raise this in your writing. You talk about how in these discussions with the Mueller team, he, Paul Manafort is subjecting himself probably to civil liability, to state crimes. And you talk about how the, the, the specter of a presidential pardon is part of all of this. And the president cannot pardon Manafort from any state crimes. And it sounds like because Mueller has not gotten the kind of information that he wanted from the people who have been swept up in this dragnet, he is really focusing on Manafort at this point to try and get him to sing or, as you said so aptly, compose <laughs> yeah, well, I wish I that wasn't mine. That was that was actually Judge Ellis. The, yes, yes. Yeah, he was the one who who presided over Manafort's first trial in the federal trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, where he was convicted on the eight counts. But I think what's going on with Man with Manafort, Gail, is uh, Mueller wants to basically they want information that Don Jr. told yeah. Trump about the meeting with the Russian lawyer to get the, the Hillary dirt. And this again underscores what I what I've been what I've been trying to point out here. 
which is let's say that happened. You know, let's say Don Jr. did tell his father that they were having this meeting and they might get this information right. uh, that they were hoping to get uh, dirt on Hillary. Let's say also on the other thing that we're hearing about that Jerry Corsi, who's yes. in the news today, let's say he really did have a connection at WikiLeaks who told him that they had Podesta's emails and Corsi told that to Roger Stone who told it to President Trump. Now, mind you, they don't have that, right? They don't they don't even have that. They don't have anything close to that at the moment. Right. But let's say they had it. That's their best version of events. Somebody explain to me what's the federal crime? Right. There That's is no federal crime taking investigation. It, so it, what they're doing they're taking they're trying to turn opposition research into a federal crime and it seems to me that if you're going to do that the Clinton campaign hired a foreign spy to pay Russian sources, some of whom were connected to the Kremlin, to get dirt on Trump. Right. And it seems, it seems like the only difference between the two, and maybe the reason that Hillary was smarter, was that the Clinton campaign managed to, to entice the FBI and the Justice Department into joining their conspiracy. <laughs> so therefore, the FBI and the Justice Department don't want to investigate that one. So we're only looking at, you know, the Trump campaign's operations, if they had them, uh, with respect to, uh, you know, dirt, opposition dirt on the opposition candidate. And it all sounds, I agree, it's disgraceful. If, if you know, if Congress wants to pass some legislation tomorrow that says, you know, we, we got to keep foreign sources out of politics, and if they can do it in a way that doesn't violate the First Amendment, I'm all for it. But it's not a crime now. So I don't know. Why do you why do you assign a prosecutor to investigate something that's not a crime in the hope that if he gets enough of these clowns to, you know, to to give inconsistent statements or to lie because they're embarrassed about some of the people that they associated with in the campaign, uh, they get some false statements, uh, please. But they don't actually prove the thing that they told us was the rationale for the investigation in the first place which was that there was a hacking conspiracy between Russia and Trump. Right, and you you mentioned saying that, you mentioned the beginning that you gave Bob Mueller and his team the benefit of the doubt at the beginning, and I got asked about this in interviews, and you want to, you want to believe that someone of Bob Mueller's public service and experience would not go political as special counsel. You want to... Uh, hope that whatever he ends up producing is not going to be politicized. But you've written a lot about impeachment, even about President Obama's possible impeachment for various violations of of uh, the Constitution and separation of powers and uh, problems that he had when he was in charge of the White House. You've also written about impeachment issues for President Trump. What do you think? If you, it's hard to see the future. None of us have a crystal ball. But where do you think this ends? Do you think there will be a damning report issued by Bob, Bob Mueller that will, now that the House is controlled by Democrats, result in articles of impeachment, which of course will be stopped by the Senate because that the the Republicans still hold the the majority ship of the Senate. But do you think it's going to come down to that? Well, you know, this really is the the main question, and the reason that I've, I've um, the reason I go on and on about whether this is actually a crime or not is I think we have to go back to basics here and ask what is Bob Mueller, because people seem to forget. You know, I heard Professor Dershowitz is out there saying he's going to issue a report that's devastating for the president, yes. but it's it, but it'll be politically devastating. It won't show any crimes. Okay. Well, Bob Mueller is a federal prosecutor. Right. He is he is not counsel to a congressional committee. He is not counsel to an impeachment committee. He is not Bob Woodward uh, right. writing a, a bio book about whether he thinks Trump is fit for the office or not. He's a federal prosecutor, and his mission is, I give you X, Y, and Z, transactions to investigate, you come back and tell me, is there sufficient evidence? Is there evidence beyond a reasonable doubt 
that we should file charges here or should we decline prosecution? That's his only job. I don't understand why Mueller, I mean, look, I did this for 20 years. When you decline a case and you close a file, there's a little form that you fill out and, you know, you decline prosecution uh, because there was insufficient evidence or, you know, whatever. But you don't write an epic about, you know, why you why you decline. Usually you decline prosecution with Hillary Clinton twice. Right. Right. But I'd be like if I was running the Justice Department, I'd be Bob. We sent you off on, on the best possible spin on things because Rosenstein really didn't comply with the regs, right? Right. But we sent you off to find out, was there a hacking conspiracy between Trump and the Kremlin? Do you got that? And he comes back to me and he says, no, I don't got that. Right. And you say, okay, well, why? What is it? Well, there's, there's insufficient evidence that there was any knowledge or participation on the part of the Trump people in the Russian hacking operation. I say, fine, that's your report. Yes. There's insufficient evidence of a crime. What else did you find? Well, you know, they had they were trying to get this opposition research and they were trying to get it through, you know, what they found out, WikiLeaks had it. They may have been operating it. And I say, well, where's the crime there? What does that have to do with what we set you off to do? And the, the fact of the matter is it probably has a lot to do with what they set them off to do because they didn't give them any guidelines. But I think what the Justice Department has to do here is say, you know, look, you're a federal prosecutor. You are not here to write, you know, the the uh, uh, some kind of a novel or some kind of a bio <laughs> on whether you think Trump should be president or not. The right. public already right. decided that one. You know, the prosecutors don't get to decide that. The, the voters do. And you can think they're dumb. You can think they're smart. You can think whatever. Not your job. Right. right? Your job is... Here's the X, Y, and Z crimes that we could see that you possibly had any authority to investigate here. What do you got? And if he says, I can't prove them, then you say, all right, well, we're closing the case because there's insufficient evidence of a crime. You don't get to go out and say, but here's all the other interesting stuff we found. If if people remember Ron Rosenstein, who was Mueller's boss for most of this investigation, Yes. The way this investigation got kicked off was they fired Comey on the basis of a memo, at least this is part of it, on the basis of a memo that Rosenstein wrote in which he was deeply critical of Comey for speaking publicly about the evidence in a case against an uncharged person, which you're not allowed to do in the Justice Department, right? We always say the government speaks in court. And what that means is if you think that somebody has committed a crime, then you formally accuse them in an indictment. And then that person gets all the due process that we give in our system to defend himself. That's a fair fight, right? You don't get to say, we're using the grand jury, we're, you know, we're using all our powers of prosecution to gather information. We find a lot of stuff that's very interesting and it's got a lot of innuendo, but we can't charge a crime. But we're dying to tell you everything that we found out. You don't get to do that. If you if you got a crime, then charge the crime, and then the person gets to defend himself. If you don't have a crime, the, the rule of the road in the Justice Department is you keep your big trap shut. That is an excellent point because that is what people expect under their constitutional rights. That they, I mean, we all know the power of the government, let alone the federal government, and nowadays the ability to malign someone's character. And I, I think that's an excellent rule of the Justice Department to make sure that that governmental power is not abused. And I think sometimes people think that prosecutors, you know, misuse their authority or you know, they they use the power of the government to kind of essentially target people. But I would say that my experience with par- prosecutors is they care very strongly about the Bill of Rights because they understand they're, they are part of this system and they understand that if they do not follow the law, then the entire system breaks down. And to, to switch topics a little bit with your experience prosecuting, There was an interesting article this week about a college student who has been charged in a state crime with hazing uh, that resulted in another college student's death. And 
the prosecutors in that case are trying to get the defendant to surrender his passcode for his phone so that they can access all the messages on the phone, I guess, in furtherance of their, you know, building their case against the defendant. The student defendant is refusing to give his phone code and his lawyers are saying they're going to take it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, And I'm interested in your take on this case as a former prosecutor, because prosecutors want to have all the evidence that they're entitled to in order to make the best case that they can. Uh, And we've seen some really interesting Supreme Court cases recently regarding uh, cell phone tower information on location that that enabled um, prosecutors to be able to pinpoint defendants when they're near bank robberies. We've seen this. You might remember the San Bernardino case where there was a fight about whether or not the government could have access to the uh, mass shooters in that case. I think it was an Apple phone and Apple was fighting, giving the information. So you see it in local cases, you see it in federal cases, you see it in national security issues. How do you think that we're going to see in relation to technology uh, this play out in terms of the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the government's right to this information that all of us carry on our phones now? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case. And what it comes down to, I think, Gail, is is your password a physical fact or is it a testimony? In other words, what we we know under the way the Fourth Amendment has been uh, has been interpreted over decades, that physical aspects of your person, for example, you don't have a Fifth Amendment right to keep them from from the government. So, for example, I used to be able to subpoena a defendant's fingerprints and photo or a suspect's fingerprints and photographs. I used to be able to subpoena hair. Um, you know, physical facts about a person, you don't have a Fifth Amendment right uh, to, to keep from the government. On the other hand, um, you can't be compelled to testify against yourself. That's your Fifth Amendment right. So is a passcode more like, you know, uh, some people open their fo- cell phones with the thumbprint, right? right. Instead, of a, instead of a passcode. Is a passcode like a thumbprint? In which case, if they have your thumbprint, they would be able to open the phone, right? If, if that's how you, what you use. On the other hand, it's a verbal thing that you have to give them, which seems a lot like testimony, right? right? <laughs> so, I, and I, I think the the overlay on this, which I've always found very interesting, is you know, I look as a prosecutor, I took advantage of all the investigative assets that we had. Yeah. But my understanding of the way the law worked is that. It was on the government to stay a step ahead of the bad guys as far as technology is concerned. And technology is always, there's always a war going on where it's a quiet war that nobody hears about, but it's, you know, the, the government is figuring out new ways to snoop into what you're doing. Right. Uh, and you, you hope they're doing it only on people who should be snooped on. And the people who get snooped on are coming up with new ways to thwart being snooped on and that's how and that's how the that's how the chess match works but you know when we started with wiretaps back in the uh, earlier part of the the 20th century it was because the government developed a technology that allowed it to tap the phone you know now the government we've kind of changed our position on this in, in i think or at least some people have in what could be a dangerous way which is that we have some kind of an obligation to allow the government to have a backdoor into our affairs just in case they need it because bad things might happen. And that's not really the Fourth Amendment is your guarantee that the government doesn't get that. In order to get access to it, they have to have a warrant. And it's on them to figure out how to get access to the information. So, you know, a court might well say a passcode seems to me like it's more testimonial than physical, but you, the government, why don't you go figure out a way technolo- technologically to get into the phone? And they're, and what they're saying is that technology is not available now. Right. And what a judge might say is, well, 
too bad, so sad. You know, before wiretap technology was available, you didn't get to like tell someone you need to give me the other phone extension so I can go listen in on your phone call. Right. That makes sense. And I think related to that, I I had this thing, you know, all the DNA tests for Ancestry and uh, 23andMe. I had a son who wanted to do that and he convinced me to let him do that. And he, we sent away his DNA and then I, so it took him a long time to convince me to let him send off his DNA to one of those ancestry.com 23andMe organizations. And I was very concerned about that because I thought, you know, they're going to have this database of everybody's DNA. And I was talking to my 90 year old father who also practices law with me and is very interested in privacy, but but his answer to me about my concern was, well, I I think it was around that time that they had said they found the Golden State Killer by DNA by one of his relatives that was sent in to Ancestry.com. And I was talking to my father and law partner about this, and he said, well, just don't kill anybody. So I guess that's a pretty good uh, answer <laughs> for that whole concern. Uh, but but certainly with the phones on, I don't think people realize that. So this is kind of interesting thing about the, the distinction between the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment and physical and testimony. I don't think most people, when they're setting up their iPhones or their Samsungs, think, well, if I use facial recognition, I'm going to lose out on a constitutional protection. Uh, but if I use a passcode, then I might not have to worry about that. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out as it goes up the chain. And and it's also kind of surprising that this this college student is going to contest this particular issue, I think, because that, that's a lot of legal fees, obviously. It's, it, but it's a question that obviously has to get settled. And there are, there's a whole bundle of these issues that the Supreme Court is wrestling with. You mentioned the, uh, the case from last term. This is going to be a continuing theme. You know, it's, it's, I guess I, I would just leave it on this. Uh, it, it's a shame to me that in the Kavanaugh hearing, it devolved into such nonsense. Oh. Yeah. It would have been a lot more interesting in terms of the law to know where Kavanaugh comes out on a lot of these Fourth Amendment issues that the court is very deeply divided on right now. And it's not necessarily the kind of ideological breakdown of the court that you would ordinarily expect. So, you know, what his views are on the Fourth Amendment and, you know, the idea of are you an expectation of privacy guy or are you a, uh, you know, a property and trespass kind of thinker on these issues? I, I would have liked to see that get probed a, a lot more deeply and maybe not have to learn so much about Kavanaugh's high school yearbook. Right, and too much uh, Spartacus grandstanding took the time <laughs> right. away from doing that. Well, I have one kind of final, actually two final topics, but we can do sort of a lightning round. You're very active on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle for everyone to follow you? It's at Andrew C. McCarthy. And we saw a lot of conservatives this week being shadow banned or, or taken off Twitter. Twitter. Jesse Kelly, there was a, a woman journalist, I I guess she's a citizen journalist who was also uh, suspended for discussing Sharia. You oh, have, Laura Loomer, yeah. Yes. You have a vast amount of experience and knowledge about Sharia, which I loved learning about in reading your book about the 1993 uh, World Trade Center bombing and your prosecution of those involved in perpetrating it and planning it. What do you think the future of a platform? Obviously, it's a it's a private company, so it it does not have the same constitutional restraints that uh, any government forum would have. But what do you think the future of of a company like Twitter is going to be when you can have very virulent anti-Semitic uh, types of posts on Twitter? Uh, very offensive things that are put on there all the time, and yet you see conservatives being suspended, like James Wood was suspended too, and Laura Loomer, as you mentioned, for uh, very some very non-debatable uh, reflections on Sharia law. Yeah, I, I think what will end up happening, Gail, is they'll they'll have to be a 
an alternative service that is more along the lines of uh, of the First Amendment. I think you know if they want to if they want to start to police content, then I think that they're not just a, a carrier anymore. They're they're responsible for what's on their network, um, and then therefore you have to rethink all of the immunity from liability that they have for things like you know. Uh, terrorism messages being conveyed on their system and, and all that stuff. Uh, if they're going to actually police content, then I guess, you know, they have to be deemed to be responsible for the content that they allow to have on there. So it seems to me they're, they're being very foolish here and, and playing with fire because I think they probably are not capable of policing all of the bad stuff that goes on on Twitter. It's just there's too much of it. And I doubt they would want to be in a position being responsible for, you know, some of the stuff, some of the stuff that they don't, uh, that you know, that they don't pull down on account of their rules. So it, I, I just think for them, commercially and legally, it's a really dumb thing to purge conservatives. But I also think, you know, the market always has an answer to this kind of stuff. And, you know, eventually, I think, either conservative people, it'll be like Fox News, you know, something will emerge that, that, uh, that's willing to serve that market. And if it becomes efficient enough, like, you know, Fox has shown itself to be, it'll end up having a pretty dominant position. But, you know, somebody's obviously got to, um, you know, got to invest in the enterprise and, and, and get it up and running. But I think the market will eventually answer this. If, if conservatives aren't welcome there, and, you know, people now think that, that Twitter is um, policing their content, they might find attractive something that's like Twitter, but doesn't police their content oh. the same way. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So you have also written and spoken about acting Attorney General Whitaker and why uh, all the, the drama over his appointment is much ado about nothing. I know certain people are on the short list for the next attorney general. I won't mention his name, but I am curious what you think President Trump should look for in his next attorney general. I, I think uh, if, if uh, Judge Mukasey doesn't want to do it, he should clone Judge Mukasey. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's my suggestion. Well, if people are interested in following your work, where can they find it? The best place is National Review, which, uh, and I think uh, your listeners, uh, who will, if, if there are any who aren't familiar with National Review, would find it great because there's a lot of uh, terrific writers and a broad array of uh, different opinion under the conservative tent there. Uh, and my books are published by Encounter Books, which also has a terrific website with a lot of terrific writers. Andy, thank you so very much for joining me today. It was very informative, and I try to keep track of all these things, but I learned so much from our discussion today. Thanks so much, Gail. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in DC. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. Check out my website, gailtrotter.com, and support these informative interviews on Patreon. This is Right in DC. You're Right in DC with Gail Trotter.